Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading for today comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 19. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're continuing where we left off, uh, literally picking up with the next verse. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting, in Christ Jesus, when I come to you again. The word of the Lord. Thanks. So as you all know, we've been doing our sermon series, Church and State, the rise of early Christianity. Each week we've been looking at the history of the early church, the documents we find in the New Testament, and we're asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to tell us about being the church in the 21st century? And today we have come to the last sermon in the first part of our series. Just think, only three more parts to go after this. And we'll be through the whole early church. How does that sound, everybody? You feel good about that? Oh, absolutely, right? Okay, so today what we're going to be talking about is this tumultuous transition that the church undergoes in the 60s. And I joked last week that it's not the 1960s, of course. It's the 60s of the first century. And today, I'm going to outline for you, in very specific ways, how Paul was able to save the church from total and complete 
collapse. Before we can get into that, we need to go back to what we talked about last week. Because last week we discussed, if you remember, some of the first true persecutions endured by the early church at the hands of Emperor Nero in 64 AD. And what I said to you all was that Paul may have been indirectly responsible for those persecutions. And some evidence for this exists in the letter we read today to the church in Philippi. Now, Philippians, this letter is the last letter we have from Paul in the New Testament that was written by him. There are other letters that Paul wrote or were attributed to Paul, but were not actually written by him. They were written by his disciples. We'll be talking about those letters in the future, in future sections of the sermon series. But he's writing this letter to the Philippians from Rome, where he is awaiting trial. He's under house arrest. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul did to be in a position where he's going to trial in Rome. We don't know. He never tells us. But what we can be sure of is that he's probably there because he wants to be there. Remember I told you all last week that Paul, he probably would not have faced quite so many persecutions if it had not been for the fact that he liked to provoke and antagonize the people around him. Now, he didn't do this because he was sadistic. He did this because there was a method to his madness. His goal was to go out and to try to convert as many high-ranking officials in the Roman Empire as possible because in his mind, if he could convert these high-ranking officials, then that would be a huge victory for Christianity, wouldn't it? It would catapult Christianity to this entirely different platform than what it was on before. But here's the problem, is that because he was so vigorously trying to make the church known to these government officials, that may be why Nero actually knew about Christianity in the first place. And if he hadn't been doing that, then Nero might not have done those persecutions. Now you can see this motivation, you can see it coming out in Philippians. We actually read about it this morning. Let's take a look at what he has to say here. So he says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, this is very, very important. While he's under house arrest, there are soldiers who are there to guard him. And he's been preaching the gospel to these imperial guard, right, to these people who are there to guard him. So what this tells you is he's inching what? Ever closer to these high-ranking government officials. He's getting there. But this raises a really interesting question. Like, I think we can understand the tactic, right? Do you all understand the tactic, why he's doing this? Does it kind of make sense to you why he would be? But the fact is, was he doing this early on? Was this the way that he was doing it? Do you remember the early sermons where we talked about this? I mean, what was he doing early on? He would go to what? A synagogue, right? He would go to Jews in a synagogue in some city and he would, and he would go to them and he would say, hey, Jesus is going to come back any day. You should believe. So why the change of heart? Why all of a sudden is he shifting tactics on us and going towards these high-ranking government officials? This is where knowing the order in which he wrote these letters becomes very, very important. So does anybody remember... The first letter that Paul wrote. 
First Thessalonians, very good. Okay, do you remember the year it was written? Does anybody have their little sheet with them that I gave them? Oh, darn it. No. All right, so it was 51. Don't bring up the next one, so we'll wait on that one. Okay, First Thessalonians. And in that letter, remember what he was saying? He's saying, hey, Jesus is going to come back any day. Just stay calm, be patient. He's going to be here. All right. Now, we get to Philippians. I told you that's the last letter that he wrote, right? Anybody have the sheet? Does anybody bring it with them? Or is it all gone? They're all gone at this point, huh? Uh, washing machine. Ah, okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's the way it goes. <laughs> Everything's temporary. It's all right. Okay, so Philippians, that was written in 61 AD. Ten years later. Ten years later. Now, what has changed in ten years' time? Nothing. And that's the problem. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so, what you have to appreciate is that Paul, he's finally coming to the realization that he might die before Jesus returns. And so, you can see him wrestling with this issue in the letter to the church in Philippi. Which, by the way, in case you're wondering, I think this is very interesting. So, you can see there's Thessalonica, Philippi. They're very close to each other, aren't they? They're only about 100 miles away from each other. So more than likely, these churches were founded one after another. He, would go, he went from Thessalonica probably up to Philippi to found it next. And I think it's very interesting that the first letter and the last letter they wrote, they're so close to each other. But let's take a look at what he has to say here in this part. He says, For me... Living is Christ, and dying is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So do you see what's happening here? He's coming to the realization that Jesus is not going to be returning in the near future, as he had once hoped. And so he has come to the conclusion that if he wants to be with Jesus, then he's probably going to have to die. And so you can see what's happening in this particular scripture, can't you? You can see what he's talking about right here. Which does he prefer? What does he, what would he, he says which one he prefers, which one is it? Would he rather live or die? Die. He'd rather die. Be with Jesus. But he feels called by God, doesn't he? He feels called by God to be there for his churches. Now, if his preference is to die, to be with Jesus, but yet he feels called to be there for his churches, why? Why is that the case? Well, there's some trouble brewing in Paul's churches. Things are not going particularly well because what's happening is with each day that passes, where Jesus hasn't returned, more and more of Paul's churches are collapsing in on themselves. You see, Paul, he started his churches by saying that Jesus is going to come back any day. That's why you should believe in Jesus. But by 61, which is where you see Philippians, that is almost 15 years after Paul started some of his earliest churches. So he starts converting churches 44, 45. 15 years later, he still hasn't come back yet. Now, do you remember... 
when we were talking about the church in Jerusalem, remember how I told you that wasn't doing well? And that wasn't doing well because all of a sudden people were sitting there saying, hey, Jesus hasn't come back yet. And they started leaving. Well, the same thing is starting to happen in his churches. They're getting tired. They're getting worn out. And most importantly, they're starting to question whether or not Paul was telling the truth. Now imagine for a moment. I want you to take, take a step back. Imagine that you're Paul. Once you get into his mindset, you're living in Rome, you're under house arrest, you're awaiting trial, and you hear things are not going particularly well for your churches. So you've got nothing but time on your hands, so what you do is you start writing letters to your churches to try to prevent them from imploding. And what you're going to be focusing on in these letters is you're trying to adjust their expectations. You want to change the timeline of Jesus' return, because you want them to stay with the movement, right? You want them to say, look, I know Jesus hasn't come back yet, but just stick with it a little bit longer. It's worth your time. And you can see how he does this in the letter we read this morning. Take a look at this. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. Why would Paul be put to shame? Because he said Jesus was coming back and he hasn't come back yet. But here's the thing. That doesn't matter, does it? Because Paul, he's shifting the game a little bit here. Because what he does is he says, you know what? It doesn't matter whether or not Paul has come back because you can be with Jesus when you die. This is a huge shift, a huge shift that he goes through right here. Because what he's doing is he's changing Christianity from a religion that focuses on the present life, which is all about Jesus coming back right now. Remember, that's what he was saying for all this time, to the what? Afterlife. I cannot emphasize enough how important this particular shift is in the history of Christianity. Because this particular shift it's what changes Christianity into a religion that becomes focused on saving people's souls. Because Jesus has not come back yet, now you need to believe in Jesus in this life so that you can be with Jesus when you die. That was not the original focus, but it becomes that because something happens, right? All of a sudden, Paul realizes, uh-oh, Jesus isn't going to be here. And so this is why he becomes so, so focused on converting these government officials. Because think about it. For the first time, he's realizing Christianity has to go on beyond him. It's got to exist beyond him. His entire life, he's assumed it didn't need to do that. And now it does. And if you want Christianity to survive beyond you, well, what's one of the best ways to do that? Well, if you get these high-ranking government officials to believe, then that's going to probably give it some longevity, much more so than people like Paul doing that. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that Paul's letter-writing campaign, it ended up being a failure. It didn't work, because from what we can tell, few, if any of Paul's churches, survived beyond him. Most were so mired in conflict that they ended up dissolving in on themselves. So 
If you remember back to the first part of the series, I told you Paul is the one who is responsible for saving Christianity from total and complete collapse. But here I'm telling you right now that none of his original churches made it beyond his lifetime. So how did he end up saving Christianity from failure? Well, this is actually one of the most interesting and untold parts of early church history. And I'm so excited that I actually get to tell you about this because I think this is really fascinating. So in order to help you understand how this happens, I need to walk you through this in steps because you need to see how it all comes together. You've heard all of this before because I've preached about it over the last, uh, since early September, but I'm going to put it all together for you in one place so you can see how it all works. Okay, step one. The one thing that you all know about really well is that Paul, he goes around the Mediterranean and he's planting churches everywhere. Now, initially, most of these churches, they only have a few dozen people in them, but the sheer volume of churches that he plants ensures that some of them are going to thrive. Step two, Paul decides that if you are a Gentile, a non-Jew, you do not have to convert to Judaism to be part of Jesus's movement. In other words, you don't have to follow the 613 laws of the Torah. You don't have to eat kosher. And if you're a male, you don't have to be circumcised. Very important. So what this does is it means that people who become part of his church, they can stay part of his church. And this becomes very important because what Paul could have never anticipated is that the non-Jewish or Gentile members of his churches would eventually outnumber the Jewish members back in Jerusalem. All right, step three, Paul further revises his theology, and he says that if you want to be part of Jesus's movement, you just have to have faith in Jesus. This adaptation is so critical, because what he does is he knocks down all the barriers preventing people from becoming part of the movement. He just says, hey, you just believe, and that becomes important again, because eventually these Gentile Christians will outnumber the Jewish Christians. Step four. Paul's churches devolve into chaos. This happens for a number of different reasons. Sometimes the churches devolve into chaos because Jesus hasn't returned yet. Sometimes they devolve into chaos over internal power structures, power struggles with each other. Sometimes they devolve into chaos because James, Jesus' brother, is sending people into his churches and trying to undo everything Paul has done. Key to this step is that Paul starts writing letters to his churches to quell their anxiety and to defend his theology. Very important. And this leads us to step five. And this step is the step that we're going to be talking about in the second part of this series, which is that in 70 AD, the church in Jerusalem, James's church, is totally and completely destroyed, gone, decimated, doesn't exist anymore. And at the same time, all of Paul's churches, they collapse in on themselves because they can't exist after Paul has died. Many of them can't function. And it's due to the fact that he's not there and that Jesus hasn't returned. So by 70 AD, everything they'd built up over the first 40 years, from 30 to 70, gone. It's flatlined. The church is done. If you were there in 70, you would say, it's over, guys. We gave it a shot. It was a nice try. But then, something happens that nobody expects. Unbeknownst to James, to Paul, 
to Peter, any of those original disciples, because they're all dead by this point, is that the members of Paul's original churches, after they've collapsed, they go out and they start forming new churches on their own, a second generation of churches. And what's so important about this is that these churches, they have no overriding structure to them. Because remember, the church in Jerusalem, is that there anymore? It's gone. So the only thing they have and the only reason they can do this is because when they collapse and they dissolve and they go off and they start their own churches, what do they have? They have Paul's letters that he wrote to them before their churches collapsed. So imagine it for a moment. Let's just take the church in Corinth as an example. Church in Corinth, it falls apart, dissolves. And as if you've ever been in a church today that splits, what happens? Everybody goes off, like, they choose sides, you go off and you form your own church, right? And that's what happens today, it's what happened back then. So they go off, they form their own church. And they don't have a Bible, like we do today, but what they do have are these letters that Paul wrote. And these letters, they form the second, the foundation for the second generation of churches. Because remember, what has he done in these letters all, to, all up to this point? He's been defending and saying, this is what I believe, this is what we need to do, right? And so they use these as their path forward. And this becomes super important because after 70 AD, the church becomes less and less Jewish, which means that Paul's letters become more and more important. So what I'm trying to tell you is that if Paul had not fought with James over what was the right way to be Christian, and if Paul's churches had not devolved into chaos, and if Paul had not written these letters defending his theology, then in 70 AD, the church would have been gone. It's the fact that the church was in so much chaos that Paul inadvertently created the ingredients that were necessary for it to survive. Because he wrote those letters to save his original churches, which it didn't do. All those churches were gone. But those letters, they end up creating the foundation for the next generation, which is why you are sitting here today. You see, so many people, they want to believe that the early church was this smooth, clean progression, that there were no blemishes, no conflict, everything was all good, and that it was just this perfect thing. But the fact is, if it hadn't been for such a chaotic start, and if James and Paul had not fought over what it meant to be a Christian, if they'd all agreed, Paul would have never written those letters, would he? Everybody would have said, hey, we're all on the same page, we're good to go, don't worry about it then we wouldn't have those letters. And when the church collapses in 70, you have no way to start over. And this is the most amazing thing about Christianity, is that the Christian religion rose out of that chaos. And this is what it has done again and again throughout the centuries. Every time the church is on the brink of total collapse and failure, something new comes up out of the chaos, giving it fresh life. And I think that that's why so many people throughout history have been attracted to, to Christianity. It's because it's a reflection of our lives, of who we are. I've told you all in the past that I grew up in a fairly chaotic home. I grew up in circumstances as a child where I heard things that no child should hear. I grew up in a situation where I saw things that I shouldn't have seen. 
And I remember as I emerged into my teenage years that I felt like my life was in total and complete chaos at that point in time. And I have these vivid memories of sitting in my room as a teenager and laying in bed and feeling like the world was just going to collapse in on top of me. That's how I felt at the time. And there were days where I felt like, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Like there were days where I felt like, you know what, it'd just be easier if I was dead. And frankly, I would just be able to not have to deal with all this because I didn't know how I was going to cope and I didn't know entirely how I was going to find the energy to move forward. And I remember, even though I wasn't a Christian at that time, I still spoke to God every night. And I would ask God, I'm like, why am I going through all of this? Like, why am I struggling in this seemingly endless way? And I remember one night, I was sitting there, I was talking to God, and I caught this vision of a future version of myself. And in this vision, I could see this person who I possibly could become. It was this person who was not burdened by this immense sadness that I felt at that time. It was a person who was sure of himself, who was loved and appreciated. And I remember at that point that I heard this voice inside of me that said, just keep going. Don't let them break you. Don't give up. You can do this. And I was so thankful that I heard that voice because I don't think if I had, I don't think I would have made it. But that's what gave me the ability to keep striving forward. And a few years later, I came across this Jesus character. I never heard of him before, didn't really know who he was. I mean, I'd kind of seen some things about him. But what was so striking to me is that this guy was born into chaos, just like me. And just like me, this guy had tenacity. Because even when things got really bad for him and nobody was listening to anything he was saying and everybody abandoned him, he kept going forward. And I was like, I can relate to this guy. I know exactly what that's like. And the most important thing that Jesus taught me, the most singularly important thing, is that what God is here to do is to take the chaos in our lives and transform it and use it for good. That, in fact, that is the entire point of the Christian religion, is to take the chaos that you find yourself in right now and to transform it and use it for good. You see it all the time. It's all throughout the Bible. Look at Jesus' life. Things are going well. Then he dies. Everything's in chaos. And then he comes back up out of that in the resurrection, something good out of the chaos. You see it in the church. The church is going along. Everything's going okay. It collapses in on itself. And thanks to Paul's letters, it rises from the chaos. Something good comes out of it. And I see it in the people who commit themselves to Jesus today. The reason why the church exists is to take the chaos in your life and transform it into something good. So no matter what you are going through right now, no matter how hard or how hopeless you may feel, please hear me when I say to you that it does get better. 
The reason why this church exists, the reason why we are here, the reason why we have gone through generation after generation for 2,000 years, this place exists so that you may take your struggle, whatever you are going through, the chaos that you feel, and that it can be transformed into something that is good in your life. That is why I became a Christian. It's why I became a pastor. And I want you to know that no matter how much suffering you are going through, it can get better. Because if it can happen for me, trust me, it can happen for you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.